Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I hope this finds you doing well. Thanks to Kelly last week for a great podcast and for leading our conversation while we were in New York City. Uh, I ran the New York City Marathon and I didn't die. So yeah, all in all, a successful uh, trip. We raised a lot of money for Lung Cancer Research Foundation, uh, about $18,000 right now. So thank you so much for everybody who's supported our family. Uh, Many of you know my mom was diagnosed with lung cancer uh, back in August of 2019, and you all have been so supportive uh, of our family since then. And thank you so much to everybody who Uh, was able to support Lung Cancer Research Foundation. We know that lung cancer can affect anyone and everyone. My mom was, uh, is a non-smoker and has a rare genetic form of lung cancer. And there are countless, countless others who, uh, uh, are inflicted by this, uh, terrible, terrible disease. And, uh, we just want to do as much, uh, research and development as humanly possible to, to, to save lives. And, uh, my mom wouldn't be here today without the amazing treatment and research and doctors that are continuing to, to save her life. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, so much this week. We are in, uh, our last week in the gospel of Mark. As many of you know, every calendar year, there's, uh, there's a different gospel with the gospel of John kind of sprinkled in, in all of the years. And we're coming up to the end of the church calendar next week. And this will be our last Sunday in the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to do a little bit of recap, a little bit of context, ask some questions, have a conversation on on Sunday. And yeah, that's kind of the, that'll be kind of the map that we'll follow. So we're in Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 8 this morning. As he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. And then Jesus asked him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. And when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? And then Jesus began to say to them, beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This all must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But this is is but the beginning of birth pangs, the word of the Lord. All right, so our last week... In the Gospel of Mark, sort of ends in this strange place in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Mark in chapter thirteen. It's not the end of the Gospel. There's still a few chapters after this, and we have this uh, apocalyptic vision from from Jesus about this the temple and their their interaction. And I kind of want to go back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark and try to trace a little bit of a through line for our conversation on Sunday. I mentioned at the beginning of the church calendar year last year uh, that I love this bit from, from the singer-songwriter Nick Cave when he wrote an introduction uh, many years ago to uh, a Canongate version of the Gospel of Mark, these little like pocket-sized things. And he wrote the introduction to the Gospel of Mark. In, in part, this is what he says. The Christ that emerges from Mark 
tramping through the haphazard events of his life, had a ringing intensity about him that I couldn't resist. Christ spoke to me through his isolation, through the burden of his death, through his rage at the mundane, through his sorrow. Christ, it seemed to me, was the victim of humanity's lack of imagination, was hammered to the cross with the nails of creative vapidity. The essential humanness of Mark's Christ provides us with a blueprint for our own lives so that we have something we can aspire to rather than revere, that can lift us free of the mundanity of our own existence rather than to affirm the notion that we are lowly and unworthy. Merely to praise Christ in his perfectness keeps us on our knees with our heads pitifully bent. Clearly, this is not what Christ had in mind. Christ came as liberator. Christ understood that we as humans were forever held to the ground by the pull of gravity, our ordinariness, our mediocrity. And it was through his example that he gave our imaginations the freedom to fly, in short, to be Christ-like. So as we dive into this text, it might be helpful to remember are two broad questions that we've been carrying with us through the Gospel of Mark. What does it mean to follow Christ? And how do we live in the midst of suffering? And over the past several weeks, you probably remember that the disciples have been really confused. They've been missing the mark, to say the least, about Jesus's mission and, and purpose of serving, healing, and his foreshadowing of his crucifixion. We've also read uh, through the last year the themes throughout the Gospel of Mark of trial and suffering, which really started uh, back with John the Baptist uh, in the first chapter, uh, preaching and, and baptizing in the wilderness. And John faced constant opposition and was eventually murdered by the authorities. And, and Jesus follows in a similar prophetic lineage of John, even if there's a little bit of divergence, and also faces opposition from the authorities throughout the Gospel of Mark. So Mark's author is telling a story of hardship and, and suffering to a group of early Jewish Christians living in Rome um, in the, the 60s and 70s during a time of their own uh, the violence and persecution by the Roman Empire that they were experiencing. And what makes the Gospel of Mark uh, perhaps really powerful, to me at least, is that it confronts the questions about what it means to follow Christ and how we can face suffering as it sweeps us up in uh, this narrative that shows us really at a human level that Jesus is the embodiment of God's living presence in the in the visceral experiences of of sickness, suffering, hardship, oppression, and persecution. We, we asked the question uh, a few weeks ago, uh, what do we think about when we think about God, right? What do we think about when we think about God? And I think Mark gives us glimpses as to what it might mean to be divine is paradoxically a deep experience of lo the love and suffering at the heart of the human experience, and in Jesus's life, we, we witness this in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus does not extract himself from 
painful situations. Uh, he does not avoid suffering, but he embeds himself with the the least, the lost, in the last. He he's present in the stormy seas. He brings healing for those who society deems as unclean, and he offers love in truly unexpected places of of suffering. And so that one of the questions that I uh, have been thinking about this morning is how does how does Mark's gospel really like at a fundamental level change the way we understand who God is and how we might experience God in our lives? If it really is um, telling us something in this narrative about um, what it means to experience God is what it means to experience what it is to be human, which is love and suffering. It's important to the gospel author, um, I think, to make clear that God is not <laughs> how a lot of times the uh, the Christian God is <clears throat> understood as some distant being watching over the universe with uh, a critical eye of some kind. Uh, but rather, we see we see in all of these stories in the Gospel of Mark that God is something like Jesus, present in human suffering and faces this suffering with real humanity, love, uh, hope even. And we see in this particular uh, very short lectionary text uh, that the disciples, once again, they missed the point about what is important. And maybe in their defense, right, the temple in Jerusalem is uh, just an unbelievable uh, structure, the pinnacle of of Jewish accomplishment in, in culture and life. Um, it's the center of the religious and political life and culture. And so they're not wrong or alone in marveling at how amazing the, the temple would have been. And they, you know, they say to Jesus, like, how great is this? Look how giant these stones are, how big the buildings are. And it's just worth noting that Jesus, Jesus's response is a critique of the very notion of the power and greatness of this religious and political institution. And he does this by foreshadowing the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 CE, which was right around the time that the Gospel of Mark was was written. So in this story that we read, they leave. And I love at the end of this text, they're, they're out um, overlooking the city from the Mount of Olives, which is near the Garden of Gethsemane. And the disciples decide that they want to get some clarity about this whole destruction of the temple business. So they ask when all of this stuff is going to happen. And Jesus then responds um, in the genre of apocalyptic, Jewish apocalyptic literature, when he talks about um, the part where he talks about betrayal, war, natural disasters, and, and famine. So it's, it's really important when we read this part, and you'll see this in the rest of, of Mark 13 if you read, read on, that it's important to know that the author of Mark in chapter 13 is writing using a really common Jewish apocalyptic imagery for the first century. So knowing this, we, we should never get wrapped up in the specifics about what Jesus says here in his apocalyptic presentation, like so many Christians have done, um, as if it 
this a text like this were prescriptive of the future, like, oh, we've got to watch out for earthquakes and famines. Uh, no, this is a very common Jewish uh, apocalyptic imagery, and it's signaling something else. There's, there's a message uh, beyond the literal interpretation or uh, words that he's actually using here. So um, all that to say is I think sometimes we approach uh, suffering in the same way as the disciples do here in this text. Like we want to ascribe theological or some kind of cosmic significance to, to why or or like them, they even want to know when the hardship is coming, right? <laughs> They're like, "Hey, we, get, we didn't know when this is happening," um, but we want to we want to ascribe theological or cosmic significance to the hardships that we're going through. Um, we saw this particularly during the pandemic. We see this uh, still probably today. Uh, don't really try to try to pay, try not to pay attention to some of that stuff. Um, when people all around the world were sort of understandably so uh, saying like things like. Uh, the pandemic is God's judgment for this and that reason, or or just really um, plainly asking, you know, why did God allow this to happen? As if God were somewhere off controlling uh, certain events and and not controlling others. So, in moments of collective suffering like this, people often ask, you know, what purpose does God have for humanity when millions of people are senselessly dying because of a virus? Very understandable question, but. All of these kinds of questions when we go through per, like levels of personal or collective suffering are really not all that different than what the disciples are trying to confront Jesus with here. You know, they want to know when this will happen. What are the signs, uh, what signs are coming so that they can know that the, that a certain kind of suffering maybe is an expected kind of suffering. So if uh, a certain type of thing happened, like an earthquake or a famine. They could be like, "Oh, Jesus told us about this." Like that's an an expected level of suffering. But Jesus doesn't re- respond by by giving them a prescriptive answer. But he he's he talks about various kinds of hardship in using this genre of apocalyptic literature. I think as a way of talking about what it means to be human. And I, I think in his response, he's not being nihilistic or flippant, like as if he's just saying like, yeah, wars will happen, bad things will happen. And that's just life. That's, I don't, I don't think that's what he's doing. I think that's fair to say. Uh, instead, he he encourages them to, to stay awake. And he says to stay alert, to watch, um, to, to stay present as he has been present with people who were in the midst of suffering, who were experiencing uh, injustices and persecutions uh, in all of these situations throughout Mark's gospel. To, to be alert, to be awake in these kinds of ways that suffering will happen, yeah, wars will happen, Famines will happen, earthquakes will happen. But we're not watching out for these in some kind of prescriptive way, as if we're theologizing every every detail as to when and why this or that happens. But to stay present as he was present with love. Um, to stay awake is to know that we are are fully seen by God and therefore see the other in the same way. 
even in pain, to know that God is, is already present with us. And it's from this place of hope and love that the community of Christ followers lives. They and, and we can step into the presence of suffering and our own pain without the need to explain it, theologize it, fight it, or run away from it. Again, to see, to stay awake is to know that we are fully seen by God first. So Jesus encourages them to stay awake, to stay true to the path of the kingdom of God, which which is God's liberating movement for peace, healing, grace. The very human embodiment of God's love in the world. This is radical in the face of pain. So yeah, wars are happening. Pandemics will happen. We will get that phone call that'll tell us that there's been a bad diagnosis. In the Gospel of Mark's message to us is that God does not cause suffering, but is present with you in suffering. We see this in the part of the gospel that we're, we're not going to read. We, we end here. But Jesus himself suffers alone in the Garden of Gethsemane. His disciples unable to do the very thing he invites them into, to stay awake. And in the most human way in his death, feels the lack of God's presence with none of his disciples by his side. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what he cries as he dies. And as you all probably know, the Gospel of Mark doesn't conclude with any resurrection stories, but with the women finding an empty tomb and overcome by their fear, they just leave. They don't, they don't say anything to anyone. And we know later somebody came by and added some verses on to make that, that ending a little bit more palatable. But I think it's important to at least think about that Mark doesn't give us any tidy answers at the end of this book. It's a story of Jesus who is profoundly human, perhaps unexpectedly human. And his sorrow and abandonment and death are all critical elements of that. And yet, within this narrative that we have with the Gospel of Mark, there's a provocation for his followers to walk this path, to continue on, even in the midst of suffering, with grace and healing and love for the liberation of all people. As Nick Cave said, you know, Christ came as liberator. So as we wrap up this 
year, as we wrap up the year in the Gospel of Mark, how might we today as a Christian community live in a way that responds to Jesus' invitation to, to stay awake, to, to keep watch, to, to stay alert? How has suffering or has suffering ever led you to reevaluate what, what really matters most in your life? And maybe that's a question for Sunday. What matters most to you in your life? And are you spending your time and energy on that? Yeah, the, the disciples look at all these buildings and they're like, this is amazing. And Jesus is like, yeah, they'll be, they'll be gone soon enough. And we spend so much of our, our lives and our time fixated on things that will be gone soon enough. And yet we, we're given this invitation to, to wake up. Wake up to what matters most. And sometimes great suffering can lead us to reevaluate what matters most to us in our lives. And that's not some kind of theological uh, proclamation that God uses suffering so that we can realize what we truly need to care about, nothing like that. Uh, but there is wisdom in these sacred stories in the Gospel of Mark in which the author is inviting the community suffering in Rome to follow Christ in a way that is about love and liberation, justice and peace in the midst of their, their persecution, in the midst of what they're going through. In that spiritual invitation, that human inv invitation is there for us today to wake us up, to bring us into lives that embody, like truly embody God's love in the world. Not in a way that we just say like, oh, we just say the, the thing that we were supposed to say at church, but in a way that we really reevaluate what matters most to us in our lives. What do you care about? So may we stay awake to injustice, oppression, and addictions all around us that need the liberating love of God. And may we live from a place of being fully seen by the God who is love so that we might see everything in our world with that same kind of love. All right, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, look forward to our conversation on Sunday as always. And as we approach this week, may we love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. Be well. <laughs>